0: With all my apologies to you who are blonde, I want to tell a story about three blondes. Now these are not blonde women, these are blonde men, okay? so Three blondes died in a car wreck. They found themselves standing in the front of the pearly gates with St. Peter. He told them before they could enter heaven, they had to tell him what Easter was all about. The first blonde said, well, Easter's a big holiday where we give thanks, have a big feast, and eat turkey. No, said Peter, you don't get in. The second blonde said, Easter is the holiday where we celebrate Jesus being born of the Virgin and we give gifts to each other. No, said Peter, you don't get in either. The third blonde said, Well, I know what Easter is all about. Easter is a Christian holiday which coincides with the Jewish Passover. After Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, he was betrayed by Judas, turned over to the Romans. They crucified him on a cross, and after he died, they buried him in a tomb and put a large boulder in front of it. Very good, said Peter, and the blonde continued. Now every year the Jews roll the stone away and Jesus comes out. If he sees his shadow, we have six more weeks of basketball. (laughs) Most of you know what Easter's about. I trust all of you do. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and to affirm the central event of the Christian faith. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I only want to deal with one question today. Did it really happen? Since this is the cornerstone of the Christian movement, Paul calls it of first importance, we need to be sure, this thing we call the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. Not everyone thinks it did. Some of you may be wondering, did it really happen? Come on, dead people don't rise Church people have doubts just as well. In fact, I read once where 30% of believers, as many as 30%, have their doubts about the resurrection. And I have questions at times about different aspects of the Christian faith, but doubt is not all bad. In fact, I think doubt can really help you in your faith and help you in, in various ways. And if you have some questions about Christianity, I want you to sometime this morning text me a question. Got the number up there. Uh, Any question about Christianity, something that might baffle you, um, I'd just like to see what it is about Christianity that maybe causes some issues for me and causes some doubts. And place your name on the text so I'll know who it's from, and if you want to talk about it more, I could uh, talk to you this week. But I'm going to try to deal with at least one of them at the end of the service. So send me a text, phone's right down there, and ready to take them. Richard Dawkins is an atheist. Here's his definition of faith. Faith is believing in something that has no evidence. Now, if that's what faith is, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to believe in something that has not a shred of evidence. So is there evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Did it really happen? It's a major historical problem for a lot of people. Some will say, well, I like the teaching part of Jesus. I like what He stands for. I like His boldness and His holiness and the moral teachings. But I cannot accept that He rose from the dead and that He was and is God and lives eternally just as he claimed. Some skeptics will say that, well in the first century they didn't have our scientific knowledge about the world, they were naive about supernatural and magical happenings and they could fall easily prey to reports of a risen Jesus, but today we know better, we're more sophisticated and scientific. Here's what probably happened. Jesus' followers were heartbroken when he was killed, and since they believed he was the Messiah, they may have begun to sense that he was still with them in a mystical sort of way. Some maybe even felt that they had visions of him. And over the decades and over the passing of time, these feelings of Jesus living on spiritually and mystically developed into stories that he actually had been raised physically. It's a legend that grew over time. That sounds plausible. Come on. No one with any sense believes in a physical resurrection. My dad died in 1971. I was a junior in high school, 17 years old, and I thought the world of my dad. I thought he was the most godly man I'd ever known. And when he died, I was devastated. George Weber was gone. Now let's say that I actually saw him alive after he died. He appeared to me three days later. Dad had risen from the dead. I saw him. I talked to him. It was so real. And then he was taken away by God into heaven to live for eternity. And he told me before he left that if anyone else wants to be right with God, they must believe in him, George Weber. And I'm convinced he was right. After all, Dad was a godly man. He wouldn't lie. And God raised him from the dead. And that proves that God was with my dad. And God approves of what he says. And so I started telling others the message about George Weber and evangelizing and got a movement going. And it spread over the whole state of Wisconsin, because that's God's country and that's where it would start. And then it spread farther to heathen states like Illinois and Iowa and then to the whole United States, and then overseas, and it was amazing growth, and we could call it the gospel according to George. If that happened, some people, I didn't think it, would probably be skeptical, and they would ask, now Mark, when did this happen, this resurrection of your dad? It happened in 1971. Where was he buried? A little town called Roca, Wisconsin. And some of these skeptics decided to check it out. So they go to Verona, Wisconsin, get a court order to open my dad's grave. I protest because I know dad arose, and because the movement is so large and so widespread, everybody believes it, but the authorities, ah, we'll just check it out. They open the grave, end of movement. There's remains there, 44 years old, but still remains, and the gospel according to George is destroyed because the grave is inhabited. You know it's ridiculous to think my dad rose from the dead. I know that, no matter how much I say I saw him. And to many people, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just as ridiculous. That first generation of Christians had a lot of opposition. There were a lot of people that wanted to destroy that movement, both Roman and Jew, and all they had to do was just go to the grave, find the body of Jesus, put it on a wagon, parade it through the streets of Jerusalem, end of movement. But they never did. How do you explain the empty tomb? We know there was an empty tomb, and we know the body of Jesus was never recovered. No one in Jerusalem would have believed that preaching for a minute if the tomb was not empty. Skeptics would have produced Jesus' corpse, but they couldn't do it. So what happened to that body? And some other theories started to arise, but, you know, like maybe the disciples stole the body and lied about the resurrection. But that leads to another issue, speaking to the disciples. How do you explain the eyewitnesses? Since I was the only one to see Dad, most people would say, well, that was just a teenager and wishful thinking, and I wanted to see him so badly because I missed him so much, and my mind conjured up this vision of him. But there's no way a movement would spread to the whole world based on one eyewitness. No one else could verify it. But here's what Paul says about Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters in the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 500 people saw Jesus, here's the key, at the same time. Crowds don't have visions. Individuals do. It's a very subjective, personal thing. But crowds don't experience the same mystical vision And then there were others who saw Him at other times, the disciples, some of the women, the two on the road to Emmaus, some saw Him eating, some touched Him, a variety of sightings of Jesus alive. How do you explain all that? When Paul wrote this, 500 people, many of them were still alive. And people could go and ask some of these 500, hey, did it really happen? Tell me what what you saw. If there was only an empty tomb and no sightings, then no one would have believed it. They would assume the body disappeared some other way, but... Boy, these witnesses, how do you explain that? Whatever you think about the resurrection, it is and was clearly understood to be a claim about truth. It really happened. These people believed it. Paul is quite explicit here in 1 Corinthians. Peter, on his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, was also explicit. He said, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are not sharers of a mystic feeling, not tellers of an ancient legend. He said, we are witnesses of this fact. Now, some claim that the resurrection narratives may have been developed much later, long after the events themselves, and they were just legends that grew up over time. That's the legend theory. But this is not true. The first accounts of the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses were written just 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. We know that. Now, you can go back 20 years from today, and you can verify if there's a resurrection or not that that happened. Paul's letter was a public document, it was meant to be read aloud. He was inviting anyone who doubted, you go and talk to these witnesses, ask them. He dared people to disprove it. The tomb was empty, body was never produced. Jesus was seen by numerous people, hundreds of people, all claiming they saw Him. How do you explain that? But someone said, it still doesn't prove anything. If someone had stolen the body in order to make it look like he'd been raised, many sincere people could have thought they'd seen him, and maybe a few others went along saying it was for a good cause. And this view basically says that the ancient people were naive. The ancients would accept supernatural things because they weren't scientific and intelligent like we are. It's called chronological snobbery. We're smarter than the ancients, kind of like young people. I'm smarter than my dad. We think we're smarter than Augustine? or Aristotle, or even the Apostle Paul? I doubt it. There's been extensive studies of Jewish and non-Jewish thought from the first century, and the universal view of the people at that time was that a bodily resurrection was impossible, just like we would be today. In fact, most of them didn't even want a bodily resurrection. It would have been unthinkable for Jews. They did believe in a resurrection. Jews did believe it. But they thought it would be on the final day when God renewed the entire world and removed all suffering and death and evil. And the idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history was just inconceivable. The non-Jewish world didn't believe in bodily resurrections at all. They thought the body was evil. They didn't even want to see the body rise. So the ancients weren't any more accepting of resurrections than we are, maybe less. Now the theory is a swoon theory. Well, Jesus fainted on the cross and only appeared to be dead. Jesus then awoke and recuperated in the damp coolness of the tomb and he walked out of the tomb, he didn't really die. When you read what happened to Jesus on the cross, you would conclude he died. Scourging was done with a handle about eight inches long and 24-inch long leather straps with lead balls on the end or sharp pieces of metal or bone shards and broken glass, broken uh, sharp rock, whatever, and that was to rip the tissue and the flesh. Often would, they would expose the bowels, the ribs, or the spine, and often victims did not survive 39 lashes. They would lose so much blood, the heart would speed up trying to compensate for the loss of blood pressure. The kidneys would shut down. Now, Jesus apparently was a pretty strong man. He was a carpenter, and he survived the scourging, But then He was hung on the cross in such a way that He would suffocate if the blood lost didn't kill Him. Plus, He was pierced by His spear while on the cross. And I could go through all the physical aspects, but but it's a very hard theory to substantiate. Even people from other faiths and even non-Christians believe, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Someone wrote to a preacher said, I have a friend who claims that Jesus just swooned on the cross and the disciples nurtured Him back to health. What do you think? Preacher wrote back, Beat your friend with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for three hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, and put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. He's dead. Another theory is a hallucination theory. The followers of Jesus imagined him appearing to them and speaking to them. But again, this assumes that resurrection was imaginable. And Jewish and non-Jewish, no one expected a resurrection. Others put forth the conspiracy theory. The disciples stole the body and claimed he was alive. But again, that assumes the disciples would expect other Jews to be open to the idea of a resurrection, but they weren't. Thomas, one of the disciples, said, Hey, until I see the nail prints and can touch them and put my hand in the side where he was pierced, I'm not going to believe it. Even after being told by several people, he did not believe it. But here, I think, is the big one. How do you explain the sudden rise of Christianity. One of the unique aspects of our faith is that you can know pretty much exactly the day it started. It has a definite starting point. That is not true for Judaism or Buddhism or Islam or any other religion or philosophy so far as we know. One day there was no Christian faith, then overnight all of a sudden there was. Usually, whenever there's a major shift in thinking or a worldview or the development of a religion, it happens over a long period of time. It ordinarily, ordinarily takes years for a viewpoint to win out, uh, like communism or capitalism, or the rise of the Third Reich, anything like that. That's how cultures and worldviews change. It takes time. Christianity started in one place, one day, one moment, with one man. One day it did not exist, the next day it did. That is unprecedented. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the entire Christian community all of a sudden adopted a set of beliefs that were brand new and up until that point had been unthinkable. Christianity did not arise from wonderful ethical teachings. It did not evolve from a meaningful philosophy of life. It was not the result of wishful thinking. It was not born out of a mistaken autopsy report. On Friday, the followers were defeated, depressed and lost. On Sunday, everything changed. What happened? How do you explain that? And the subsequent history... I think it's even more difficult to account for. How could a group of first-century Jews come to worship a human being as God? That's blasphemy to a Jew, to propose that any human should be worshipped. And yet hundreds of Jews began worshipping God, Jesus as God, overnight, literally overnight. What happened? Something happened, and you can be skeptical, well, resurrections just don't happen. But I want to challenge you, answer these questions. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly and with such power? That is a fact. Something happened. How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained that testimony and eventually even gave their lives for that belief? How many of you believe the Holocaust happened? Probably most of us believe it. That's a well-recognized historical event. But you know there's some people who do not believe it happened. Now, is the burden of proof on we who believe it happened or those who do not? It's on those who do not. It's on the skeptics. I think it's similar to the resurrection. There's such overwhelming historical evidence. The burden of proof is on those who want to deny it. And some skeptics have tried to disprove it, looking at all the facts and the information, and they've actually become believers in the process because the evidence is so overwhelming. There's a well-recognized probability theory Uh, Well, accepted by scholars really worldwide. And a man from Harvard put all the information that we know about Jesus' resurrection into this probability theory, you know, an objective way to determine these things, and came up with a 97% probability that it happened. If you don't short circuit the investigation, the resurrection of Jesus, pretty solid. Now, why do some people not believe the Holocaust happened? They don't want it to happen. They don't want to believe it. Don't give me the facts. My mind is made up. Some don't want to believe the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, They just don't want to. But if it is true, if it is true, it makes Jesus more important than anything else going on in your life, more important than any person, more important than the president, makes more more important than any one of us. It makes Jesus Lord. It means that He is who He says He is, that He is God. It means that He, what He says about coming back a second time is probably going to happen. I mean, everything else He said about Himself that is so bizarre came, came true. But He's going to come and restore the earth someday. It means what He says about how we are to treat others and how we are to live is true. It means that what He says about hell is true. That means what He says about the church being His bride and His body on earth is true. That means He's returning someday for His church. It means that what Paul said is true That for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had everything in the world going for him. He said, none of that measures up to living for Christ. Acts 2 then was the first sermon after Christ rose. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The crowd realized that Jesus was the promised one. He was the Son of God who He said He was. He is and was the one who will finally solve all the ills and evils of our world, and they missed it. In fact, they killed this God who came to love them. So they're cut to the heart, basically saying, Is there nothing we can do? Is it too late for us? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What a God. We kill Him, and He forgives us and offers eternal life, if we repent. Repent simply means to start again. Make a U-turn in your life. Turn toward God. Live a new life in Christ. Become a part of the Jesus movement that is taking over the world today. Jesus is in the remaking business, and He will remake your life. Someday He's going to remake this world. He conquered death. He conquered evil, and He'll someday bring it all to fruition. Now, if you have more questions about Jesus more uh, things that maybe baffle you. just want to talk more. We'll have prayer counselors down here at, at the end of the service. You can talk to them. Or you can text me. I'll get back to you. Or message me on Facebook. We would like to hear from you. Let's pray. Father, this is amazing. The best news possible. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who is indeed God, come in the flesh to die for us. I don't know how else to explain it, but that it happened. So may we live for him as he died for us, knowing that we also shall be raised with him someday. Thank you, Lord, for the life and the promise of life. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.